Martial Arts World Radio is the official radio show and podcast of The Factory Martial Arts Boxing and Fitness at 450 Matheson Boulevard East, Unit 44, Mississauga, Ontario. Check us out at www.factorygrindgym.com. This is UFC fighter Jason Sago. You are now listening to Martial Arts World Radio with Joseph Clark. Welcome to Martial Arts World Radio. I'm your host, Joseph Clark. Each episode, we speak to stars of the UFC, Bellator, celebrity martial artists, world champion boxers and kickboxers, and of course, legends and icons of classical martial arts. Over the next hour, we will feature Bellator fighter and the ultimate fighter reality TV show participant, Colleen Schneider, adapted boxer, Charles Wilton, and golden era karate champion, martial arts pioneer, and cinema performer, Mike Stone. And by the way, if you have an iPhone or iPod, be sure to download our free app for iPhones and iPods at the Apple App Store. This week's inspirational quote is from Zig Ziglar, and it goes as follows. Happiness is not pleasure, it is victory. Self-improvement, guru, Zig Ziglar, 1926 to 2012. Here is a clip from a guest of Martial Arts World Radio, Don the Dragon Wilson, on persevering through life's challenges. Uh, if you're, well, you know, the, I tell people, the, the, losing money, losing your house, losing your job, losing, to me, that, that's just the messiness of life. That, that's, I, I, I try to have sympathy, but like if, if somebody, you know, during the stock market crash of the Great Depression, he was a billionaire, and then he, he loses his money, jumps out of the building, kills himself. Well, you know what? Uh, he just, he's not even in debt. He just loses the money that he's got, and he can't even live another day. I, I just don't have sympathy for people like that because I go to third-world countries where they're looking for water every day. That, that's a concern. They are looking for clean water. And um, in our country, I sit with people that throw a fit if their steak is not cooked right. That's the big problem he's had all day long. So you've got to take things in perspective. Uh, the health and well-being and happiness of your friends and family are your strongest concern. Everything else you have to take in stride. You know, you're going to have ups and downs in your career. You're going to have ups and downs financially. It's a roller coaster ride. And if the life was not a roller coaster ride, it would be very boring. Our first interview for this episode is brought to you by the final destination for martial arts and MMA Expo taking place January 27th to 29th at the Tropicana Casino Hotel in Atlantic City. Colleen Schneider is a Bellator fighter fighting out of Los Angeles, California, competing in the bantamweight division with a record of 10 wins, 7 losses. She is 34 years of age, 5 foot 9 inches, and 132 pounds. She was also a competitor on the Ultimate Fighter reality television program. Colleen Schneider, welcome and thanks for joining us today. Hey, Joseph. Thanks for having me. Colleen, on a scale of 1 to 10, how excited are you about your opportunity to shine at your first fight at Bellator 170? <laughs> I feel like there's only one, only one way I can answer that. It's kind of awkward if I'm like, well, you know, a 6. Just kind of, kind of, kind of excited. It's whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm you... stoked. I'm, I'm really excited. I think Bellator is an awesome promotion, and I've been out of the cage way too long, so I'm looking forward to uh, getting back in there. What carried more pressure, your elimination fight on The Ultimate Fighter or your Bellator debut on Spike TV? I think I felt more pressure on The, the Ultimate Fighter uh, just because of you know getting into the house for the first ever female season and the, the way that was built up and everything around it and uh I think I felt more pressure there. Right now, I'm honestly, I don't, I don't feel pressure. I'm just excited to go fight. I had a great, great camp. Um, I feel good. I feel strong, and I just, I'm just looking forward to it. And you fought for several fight promotions over the years. So, I mean, how great is that? Adding Bellator to the list. How do you feel about that? Uh, I love it. I really do. I've, I've always been a fan of, of Bellator. Um, you know, always watch the fights. I love the shows they put on. I think they have uh, some phenomenal talent on the roster. So I am more than happy to be a part of that. 
Colleen, what aspects of your training, your camp, your preparation are going to ensure victory? Yeah, one of the things, I, it's been a, been a while since I've fought at Flyway, but I am I am a, very strong, physically strong at that division, so I feel like I can go in there and impose myself on whoever's in the cage with me. Um, I have very dynamic, exciting striking, solid wrestling, and I, I just really feel like wherever I feel like I want to take the fight, I have the, uh, the technical ability and the physicality to do that. What image and reputation do you wish to project as a newcomer to Bellator? Honestly, I, I think so many, so many women's fights. They're not even just, you know, I, I don't like watching fights where it's just kind of grinding it out in the cage, laying there, not really doing damage. Like, I want to go in there and be explosive and be dynamic and be working for the finish all the time. Not to win the fight, but to go out there and destroy someone and finish the fight. So I want people to, to see the athleticism and that power and, and think of me as an exciting, dynamic fighter. And that would be a great reputation to have, a dynamic and exciting fighter, very entertaining to watch. Yeah, and I think my my background lends itself to that. With the sport of MMA ever-evolving, the fight IQ and technical prowess of everybody improving and developing, have you had to change your fight preparation and training over time? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think I'm far smarter about how I train now than when I first started for one, you know, I'm, I'm was younger when I first started training, so my body could take a lot more abuse. Um, you can just go in and, and spar and go hard every single day, and you know, you recover from things. But you have to be, as you get on in the sport and you, you've gone through it more, you, you you just become smarter. You you learn you learn what you know and what you don't know, and how how you need to train yourself to really develop the skills that you need. It's not about constantly going in and grinding and wearing yourself down. Um, like, even, for example, like, mitt work, right? People, some people do mitt work constantly. I have learned that that's not actually the best way for me to implement things in terms of fighting. Like, the more, the more I drill things with someone who's in there with me with gloves on and we're working timing and react, reaction in that scenario, that carries over much better for me than just going in and working that on mitts. Um, so little things like that that I've learned about myself and how I learn and just, just to be smarter and respect, respect my body and if I feel like I really you know, need to rest, but that's okay. It's kind of hard. We go, 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 go and push ourselves so hard. So to to allow yourself to rest sometimes when you need to is not necessarily something that uh, a lot of fighters are great at, and I certainly didn't, didn't used to be. Colleen, a harsh reality of MMA is that we lose competitors or we have last-minute changes due to injuries, and now we find ourselves fighting a new opponent. You're experiencing that now with Bellator 170. In your experience to date, how well equipped are you to be able to adapt to that kind of a change? I've taken so many of my fights on short notice, um, less than two weeks or less than a week, where you know that's that's it. You know, you don't you don't have time to spend camp strategizing for a particular person. So this really isn't much different than that. I, when when they give me a name, I'll you know I'll, I'll watch tape and I will go through it with my coach and we'll discuss strategy. But ultimately, it's I'm going to get in there and fight my game. We have no doubt that you will, Colleen. How does the nervousness and excitement in anticipation of this fight compared to your first ever professional MMA fight? Well, and the first professional MMA fight I had was in like some podunk show up in Alaska in the middle of nowhere in like a crazy snowstorm, and it was all kind of kind of surreal. Um, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't. It's completely different. <laughs> That just felt like me flying up there and jumping into something that I didn't know what the hell I was doing or what I was getting myself into. Honestly, I feel I feel it was technically professional, but it didn't feel it didn't feel professional, and I didn't feel like I was a professional yet at that point. So that that feels uh, it just feels like a world world apart from where I'm at now. So from a first professional MMA fight in Alaska to your Bellator debut on Spike TV, it reads like a Hollywood film script. So in terms of nervousness, from a psychological aspect, how do you manage and prepare yourself psychologically to handle the nervousness of a fight like this? Uh, actually, I, I meditate every day, and I feel like that really helps calm everything and keep everything in focus for me because it's so easy to let your mind run constantly, to constantly be playing through things about the fight. And to some extent, it's helpful to visualize and whatnot, but... Um, you also, I, I think it's more valuable to just be able to be calm and be present with whatever, whatever is going on with you because ultimately that's what you need to be able to do 
in the fight. Just keep your head calm and present. Um, so I, I don't, you know, before the fight, I'm not going out much. I spend you know, all my free time when I'm not training, which isn't much of, just, just at home, like, hanging out, being mellow, and just, uh, just trying to relax and conserve my energy and just get myself where I need to be for the fight. Is meditation or visualization, in fact, something that is a daily part of your regimen, or do you incorporate it just for fight preparation? Uh, it's something I do every day, regardless of, of, of fighting or not. And I have since college. I wake up in the morning, and I, I sit and meditate for yeah, 10 or 20 minutes. And then I have days where I'll, I'll do longer, like 30 or 60-minute um, sits. But it, and it's not – those aren't about visualization. They're not about a mantra. It's just, just sitting. It's actually the like Soto Zen um, meditation, if, you, if that means anything to anyone listening. But, um, and, and I do the same when I'm uh, getting ready – for a fight, I don't. I don't want to be anxious. I don't want to be angry. I don't want to be. Um, I just want to be, be there and be present and be fully aware and able to react to everything that's happening as it happens. Do you have a favorite MMA fighter who inspired you while you were quote unquote growing up in combat sports? Yeah, my my first favorite MMA fighter was Genki Sudo. I absolutely loved. Loved, loved, loved him. I loved how he fought. He was so creative in the cage, and stylistically, it was just a pleasure to watch. But he also had so much fun doing it, and his walkouts were amazing, and his we are all one, and it's just whole ethos around it. I, I absolutely loved everything about the guy. Colleen, you've been referred to in the media as a veteran of the sport. Do you consider yourself a veteran? Um, I think that's probably a reasonable adjective to describe to me at this point i've been i've been doing it for a while i have nearly professional 20 professional fights so um yeah i guess so i I feel like i have a good amount of experience what do you do to occupy your time when you're not training yeah yeah. um i I take off my motorcycle as much as i can i find that to be just super super relaxing and there's beautiful places to ride around la otherwise i um I love my little, I have a little urban homesteading set up here in Hollywood. I have chickens that lay me eggs in a big vegetable garden. I love to cook and bake. I brew kombucha and bake my own bread, and um, I love being in the kitchen. I find that very therapeutic and relaxing. Sounds delightful. Can't yeah. eat too much right now. I just bake things for other people. <laughs> Colleen, our second last question before we wrap up. To what extent is being a professional MMA fighter about character and integrity? I think that's a very uh, individual question, right? Um, who who I am to be reflected in the way, not just in the way that I fight, but in the way that I approach training, the way that I look at the sport and the art as a whole, the way that I deal with uh, the the other my, my teammates, my competitors, all of it. Fighting is such a very personal thing that that it, it is in a way a reflection of of your character, right? That's kind of why we get, we, we like the individual personalities that we like in fighters and like the styles that we like because that shows us that it's, it's, a, it's a side of that person's character. Colleen, and our wrap-up question, would you have some advice for our listeners on pursuing their goals as you have? Uh, I think if something scares you, that means you should do it, right? And it, I literally every every day I'll have moments where I'm, where I'm afraid, whether it's a, whether it's something in training or something in spar weather or something else. But I figure if you know if I'm scared, then then it's worth me just taking that step and uh, and doing it. And uh, that doesn't mean that things stop being scary, but uh, it's a uh, it's the, I think the most worthwhile things we can do frighten us a little bit. So just you know take things head on and take a deep breath and and step into it. Colleen, I like that advice, and I'm going to share that with my kids as well. If something scares you, do it. Colleen, thanks very much for joining us, and we wish you all the best in your upcoming fight in Bellator 170. Great. Thank you so much, Joseph. From the ultimate fighter to Bellator, you've been listening to my interview with Colleen Schneider. Hi, this is Olympic bronze medalist in judo, Marty Malloy, and you're listening to Martial Arts World Radio. For those of you listening to Martial Arts World Radio while on your phones, tablets, or laptops, be sure to check out BobWallWorldBlackBelt.com, the world's foremost martial arts online community. Charles Wilton is an adapted boxer fighting out of Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Adapted boxing is the sport of boxing for contestants who require the use of a wheelchair. Charles has cerebral palsy. However, he does not let that get in the way of his dedication to a strict training regimen as he makes a reality of his goal to be world champion 
and demonstrates the heart of the warrior for his son. I spoke to Charles this past week. As he has difficulty making himself understood, he is assisted by his friend Jason Frechette. This is an incredibly inspirational interview. Charles Wilton, welcome to Martial Arts World Radio. And Jason, thank you for joining us as well. Hmm. Yeah, my pleasure to be here. Charles, for how long have you been training as an adapted boxer? In about two years, he's been boxing now. What originally motivated you to become a boxer? I was a long day I think he was saying that he wanted to get back into uh, some sort of physical activity again, and he was a long-term athlete, and boxing was, uh, was, was a good route for him. And how did you discover that organized adapted boxing existed? I never knew this existed, but yeah. He never knew that this existed until he discovered it online. And when he did, he found it, he, he discovered a passion for it and really yeah. wanted to pursue it. Charles, you are part of Triple MA Wheeled Warriors based out of the UK. How did you get associated with them? They contacted me over Facebook and they asked me to join the organization. They connected through Facebook, and uh, they offered him to join the group. To join the group, yeah. So he touched base through Facebook. Charles, do you follow professional MMA, such as the UFC, Bellator, and other fight promotions, and professional boxing? Yeah, I do. Charles, you are unique in many ways, but in one way it is that you are Canada's only organized, officially recognized, adapted boxer. Is this popular around the world? How many other countries participate in organized, adapted boxing? Yeah, we have about 90 countries around the world. 19 countries that you're aware of around the world with people that are involved in this. Are there various weight divisions in adapted boxing? Yeah, there are. There are no more. There are different weight divisions, like eight divisions. Is adapted boxing an official sport in the Special Olympics or Paralympics yet? No, not yet. So not quite yet, but they're hoping to achieve their goal and uh, have it as a sport in the next four years. An introductory sport, like to, to see how it would uh, yeah. how it would work out. Charles, how often do you train, and for how long? Um, about three times a week. Three times a week, you're at the gym. Yeah, training. Yeah. Do you have a trainer, a coach, or a team that is working with you presently? Oh my own. So currently, you are training alone with able-bodied athletes. Charles, in order for you to compete internationally, will you require sponsorship or funding? Yeah, I do. Charles, should any of our listeners wish to reach out to you tonight, any potential sponsors, how would they get in contact with you? Yeah, um, Facebook. Through Facebook, by looking up Charles Wilton. Charles, I'm aware that you do have two sponsors currently, Best Sports and Fighting Monkeys MMA Madness Magazine. However, I also realize you're trying to encourage other sponsors to take notice of you and to reach out to you, so please do so through Facebook. Charles, how long has adapted boxing existed, and how popular is it globally? A brand new sport, and we hope to grow the sport all over the world. So they're, they're trying to, but because it's a brand new sport, they're trying to get, gain awareness so that it can spread around the world. Yeah. Charles, would you share with us more in terms of what your training regimen looks like? I train like a normal able boy from the woods, but in a real So he trains as, a, as, a, as an able body person would, but... A little modified, obviously, but he does it in his chair. Yeah. 
Charles, when you're boxing, what emotion are you feeling? I'm able to do anything I So what he's saying there is, is during the time that he's training, it's the only time that he feels free because it's something that he can concentrate and focus his mind to to something that... Do everybody else So he feels that he's doing something that everybody else can do too as well, you know? He's feeling free. How long are your training sessions? Three to four hours a day. Three to four hours a day he trains. Charles, where does your drive come from? My background is the most motivating. But right now in my life, it's my yeah, baby. What he's saying there is that uh, what drives him is not only the will to want to succeed and, and be great at a sport, but uh, it's also his son. You have, how old is your boy now? He's four years old. He's got a four-year-old four year son, and uh, which is an achievement on his own. And uh, and his son's able-bodied. Everything came, worked out fine. He's, he's a very smart kid. And uh, he's showing his son that, hey, you know, just yeah. because uh, there's a disability Dang. here doesn't show that, uh, doesn't mean that it's going to hold him back, you know? Yeah. So that he, if he can achieve it, there's, there's no goals that you can't achieve. Charles, I understand that your son is your chief motivation. Are there other people in your life who motivate you? Me. Charles, when that day comes, when you fight your first adapted box, boxing organized match, what will you hope that the audience gets out of that fight? I want people to know my heart is I have a big heart. What he's saying is that his main drive is uh, what he wants people to get from this is to see that to see his heart and the dedication that he has within himself. To, you know, this, this. Do, do what I do because that's what I mean. So he wants people to see the dedication and the heart that, and, the, and the desire that he's got to, uh, to achieve. Yeah. Charles, how does it make you feel when you see able-bodied people who take the use of their arms and legs for granted? Be, being able, to, having the opportunity to be able, but not doing it. So being able to have the opportunity to do it, but not taking that opportunity is a waste. Yeah. Charles, I salute you. You are a true warrior, and you have the heart of the samurai. Charles, not to dwell on the negative... But I want to ask you this. Do you ever catch yourself feeling sorry for yourself that you require the assistance of a wheelchair? No. Because I, I am the way I am because do moving as a people, people around the world. No, he's not. Uh, he is the way he is because of I want, your body play. Me to be a tool. You're 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 made to be a tool. Do people to teach people around the world about not giving up. So he believes that he is a tool to teach people around the world. Uh, and, and not to give up. Yeah. That there's there's hope for everyone. Hope. Yeah. Charles, thank you so much for your time today. It truly is a privilege to speak with you. I'm excited to see where Adapted Boxing goes with you participating in it. And we wish you all the very best. And Jason, thank you for your help today as well. Thanks for having us. This has been an interview with Adapted Boxing's future world champion, Charles Wilton. This is world champion Steve Nasty Anderson, 
You're listening to Martial Arts World Radio with Joseph Clark. Mike Stone is recognized as the only black belt to retire undefeated with consecutive black belt victories. He was inducted into Black Belt's Hall of Fame twice as Fighter of the Year in 1971 and Instructor of the Year in 1994. He is a cinema performer, and he wrote the screenplay for the motion picture Enter the Ninja, which opened the door to the ninja movie popularity of the 1980s. Mike also held the Guinness Book of World Record for the highest aerial sidekick. As you will hear, Mike has trained and competed with legends of martial arts, including Bruce Lee, whom he had a respected mutual association with. Master Mike Stone, welcome to Martial Arts World Radio, and thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for asking. Mike, as I understand it, your first martial art was Aikido, correct? Uh, That's correct, yes. And then you transitioned from Aikido into karate. So you went from a soft technique martial art to a hard technique. You hear of a lot of people transitioning the other way, starting in karate and then getting to something more technical. I think the, the reason was just accessibility. When I first started Aikido, I was um, uh, at my junior summer in high school and I boarded at high school for four years. So uh, the photographer... Uh, the sports photographer of our high school uh, asked if I would join him that evening to take uh, a lesson in Aikido because the guy that was teaching the Aikido class was uh, Professor Uyashiba's right-hand man, Koichi Toihei, who was, um, you know, as you may know, he does a lot of world tours and uh, had passed through Hawaii every year since he had one of his top uh, senior black belts who was uh, Lieutenant Suzuki of the Maui Police Department. So it was just by chance that that summer, my junior summer, that it was uh, available for me and I went and, and started. Uh, so my first two weeks in Aikido was actually uh, taking classes from Koichi Tohei, which was, um, you know, now in retrospect, it's amazing. That is providence that you're able to, just through happenstance, train with such an incredible Aikido master. Now, Mike, in doing my homework, I've seen that it's stated that you are undefeated in black belt regular competition, but I've also seen websites and books that have stated that you've competed in as many as 90 to 100 competitions. So are you undefeated, and are you aware of how many competitions you actually competed in? Every one of them. So... In that sense, it is correct that I'm undefeated. The actual number of matches, I have no idea where it came from. It just keeps, in, in fact, it changes every time somebody makes another comment about it. Mike, is it true that you were the trainer to Priscilla Presley, Elvis Presley's wife? Yeah, she was one of my students, yes. The time in which you competed was the time of Bob Wall, the time of Ed Parker of Superfoot Bill Wallace, Chuck Norris, and others. Mike, were you aware at that time, or do you consider that time to have been the golden era for competitive martial arts in the United States? Yeah, I, I think, again, you know, when... when I, I think that's for history to, to come up with a, a label of what that period of time was. Uh, but looking at it now... Uh, from my point of view, it was a golden era for, for just many, many reasons. Uh, you know, the fact that it was just starting as a sport competition in America and karate being not a natural American sport. So there were a lot of things that contributed, and one of it was the people that were there during that time. We were blessed to have people, you know, like Ed Parker, like June Ree, uh, Steve Armstrong, Bob Trias, uh, Hill Cho, uh, there were so many people that were the right people to be involved in the tournament production part of it. And the blessing for people like myself and Chuck and Joe Lewis and, my God, just countless numbers of tremendously talented athletes that were able to participate at that particular period. I've been asked several times what period I thought was the best for American sport karate. And honestly, I will have to say it was a period that I wasn't involved in. Uh, I believe the 
uh, early 70s, making that transition from karate to the semi-contact. So I would say uh, 1971 to the early 80s, I think, had the best martial arts karate uh, tournament fighting talent that there ever was in the country, even till today. I don't think uh, we will see the likes of those people that were from that period, from 1971 to early 80s. Mike, were you aware at the time or did you have a suspicion that you were participating in something that was going to be history in the making and that would culminate and be as big as it is today when people look back at it? Yeah. Uh, no, of course. I don't think anyone, any one of us even dreamed that it would have become as big as it has. Mike, moving into your Hollywood career as a performer, a choreographer, and a stunt performer – I believe you also wrote the script for a movie called Enter the Ninja, which was the movie that kicked off the ninja craze during the 80s in cinema, correct? That's correct. Did you work with Michael Dudikoff on some of the American Ninja films? Uh, yes. So, Mike, would you please comment on how you were able to capitalize on martial arts for a film career? Did you pursue the film industry with your credentials or did they come looking for you? No, I, I, I never went out to pursue it as a career. In fact, um, uh, a lot of the friends uh, that I had at that time uh, that were connected in the movie industry and uh, people like that were the ones to actually give me the idea. But with, the, um, with writing of uh, Enter the Ninja, it, it was an idea I had before that. Uh, as, a, as a young guy, I used to watch a lot of, uh, growing up in Hawaii, I watched a lot of samurai movies and I was always in love with the Japanese culture, the people, the food, the traditions, everything about it. So I was hooked from a very early age. In fact, my, my movie hero for many years until I was about 27 or 28 years old was a guy named Shintaro Katsu who played the series of uh, uh, The Blind Swordsman. But he was my hero. I had an idea with the ninja thing because I've always been fascinated by that. And I became a good friend of Stephen Hayes who came back from Japan and wrote several books on, on the subject. And the idea was that um, uh, in writing that uh, Canon films was a company, a film production company, Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus from England. And they came over to the States at that time and they were not doing very well and needed something unique and different. So I proposed, that idea to them. And as a result, it ended up doing very well for the company because they did the five American Ninja. And one of the guys I hired initially, Shoko Sugi, to be the bad ninja in Enter the Ninja, went on to do three or four movies and has made a career out of movies. And I think he's presently living in Japan and his two sons as well. Mike, would you tell us about your Guinness Book of World Records seven-foot aerial sidekick? Uh, yeah, what happened was, uh, again, another friend uh, said that there was a television uh, show in Los Angeles called The Guinness Game out of Burbank, California, I guess it was. And uh, they contacted me and asked if I could do something uh, a little bit unusual. And I said, well, I, I don't know. Most karate people are doing board breaking and things like that. And I think that's already been done. And they said, could you do something just a little bit different? And I said, well, when I was 19 years old and in the Army, a friend of mine, one of my co-martial arts students, had a television show in Arkansas called Jimmy Jump. And it was a, a, a kiddies thing, a, a TV show. So he asked if I would go on the show and if I could do my flying sidekick. So they put a tape at the end of the sound mic, the boom mic. And I said, oh, lift it up. So they said, well, how high? I said, oh, maybe a little bit higher. And they kept going up, and all of a sudden, everybody said, whoa, that's a, that's a little too high. I said, no, I think I can do that. So after we, or before we started to shoot that segment of it, they measured it, and it was about seven feet from the floor to the piece of masking tape that was attached to the boom mic. So I jumped up and kicked it, and that was the first and only time I've ever did that. And then 35, uh, when I was 35 years old, was the next time I did that, and that was on the TV show, The Guinness Game, and I had practiced the kick jumping over uh, a tennis court net, which is about three feet high. So I did that for about three or four times, 
And I took uh, Benny the Jet Urquides with me to the show of the filming of the Guinness Book of Record thing. And uh, Benny stood under the seven-foot target. And I mean, if you're familiar, Benny's not very tall. And uh, so he looked up and he says, Mike, you're 35 years old, and this is the only other time you've, you'll ever try, try this? I said, yeah. He says, Mike, I don't think you could do it. I said, Benny, thank you very much. But I did. So, but that was the only two times I've ever done it. And the second time was at 35 on the Guinness, Guinness game, I guess, or the Guinness Book of Records. <laughs> I know Benny the Jet quite well. He's been on the show a couple times as a guest. And yeah, I could certainly envision Benny saying something like that, making a very practical observation to you. Yeah. Mike, you're available to conduct seminars, training, and keynote speeches. Is there a URL for anybody listening tonight who would like to look into that further? Uh, we have a website, but it's in the process of being changed right now. Uh, but it's um, www.mikestonekarate.com. Mike, would you give us a sample of some of the wisdom and the philosophy that you share at these seminars when you are conducting them? Yeah. It's, um, uh, it's, it's a thing that happened actually an evolutionary thing for me. When I was uh, 19 years old, uh, I had already won the internationals and uh, most of the uh, uh, nationals and other tournaments that they had in America at that time. And uh, in 1964, Bruce Lee did a, a demonstration at the internationals, and that's where we had met. In fact, after I had won that tournament uh, in the heavyweight division and the grand championship, uh, Bruce Lee... Um, uh, Ed Parker, June Rhee, and myself went out for Chinese dinner. And Bruce and I had such an affinity toward each other because of the spiritual part. I remember uh, hearing Bruce talk at a officials meeting the day prior to uh, the tournament. And what fascinated me about Bruce was his, um, uh, I, I saw integrity. I saw somebody that uh, believed in himself very much. He was as cocky as I was. So uh, I gravitated right away to the way he was speaking because he was being very honest. And I like that. So anyway, we stuck up a friendship. But what had happened was um, I had wanted to find out why everything that I was doing in karate, actually when I look back at the rest of my life, I wondered why was everything so effortless for me? Why didn't I have to work, suffer, and sacrifice like I was told to and how everybody else was trying to develop their skills, abilities, and talents? Why was it effortless for me? And I wanted to find out. And I thought that Bruce, by the way he was talking, that I could find out through his wisdom and when we had the workout, so everybody thinks that Bruce and I had uh, these, these uh, workouts. And after the, maybe the first two sessions we had together that were physical, none of it was ever physical again. It was all spirituality. It was all mentality. It was all psychology. It was all philosophy. We no longer real, understood or realized that between us, uh, there was nothing physical anymore, that it we had both evolved, I think, to another level of thinking and feeling mentally and spiritually that the physical stuff was something that we knew we were going to leave behind, that it's, it's not relevant to really who we are and who we want to be. So uh, I found out quickly that Bruce was in the same position I was. In other words... I wasn't going to learn anything from him because he was searching for the same things I was at the same time. So, but at least we had a common bond that way that we both understood what it is we needed to do for ourselves spiritually to rise above the chaos, the confusion, the struggle, the disharmony, the imbalance that most people feel in their lives. So one of the questions I wanted to find out Again, at 19 or 20, I was curious as to why was it so easy for me? Why was everybody having such a hard time? Why did I make my black belt in only six months from the day I began when I was told by my instructor it will take me five years? And he had to change his mind, his perception, 
his idea to conform to my reality of who I am and how I'm performing. So in six months, he had to change a belief system that he had and every black belt had in America at that time or even in the Orient that it's a minimum five years to get your black belt. But I said my very first day, it's not taking me five years. I can do it right now. So that whole philosophy I already had back at 19, 20 years old. So my search in life wasn't, I, I really didn't like being a teacher because I was always a student. I, I felt guilty in a sense trying to teach someone something that I really didn't understand myself at that time. So in order for me to truly get a, an honest picture of myself, who I am, who I'd like to be, um, at age 42, I decided to leave America and come to this little island. Actually, I'm talking from the same uh, lot and the property that I bought 30 years ago, and I've been living here ever since. But that quest for understanding, realization, and evolving uh, to the highest part of who I can be, I realized I could never do in a society like America or any quote-unquote civilized society. It, you just can't do it there. So, not honestly anyway, because you're so bombarded with the outside influences and most, most of them are very negative. So how can you live a, a life of humility and honesty if all around you people are lying and arrogant? It's, it doesn't make sense. You are naturally going to be influenced. In fact, our whole lives have been influenced because we have been taught to believe by family, friends, religious people, teachers, relatives, they taught us how to believe for them. They were not teaching us to be the best we can be. They were teaching us so that it would be convenient for them to deal with us. So we had to learn at some point what is our own truth. Who are we really? And we're not what people told us we are. You know, if people are telling you, you're fat, ugly, lazy, stupid, no good, you won't amount to anything, it doesn't surprise me at the vulnerable ages that we are to absorb information, we start to believe that crap. And we start living that idea until sometimes we just have no idea who we are. So anyway, <laughs> I ask you about the time because I can go on forever, obviously. And I could listen forever, Mike. Tell us about your books beginning with the first nine levels of power. Well, the, the nine levels of power came from the idea uh that when I came to the island here at 42 years old, I had wanted to make some, some limited thinking and negative ideas I had about myself since childhood. And one was that I wasn't very smart. So I was thinking, what could I possibly do at age 42 here on this little island, isolated, that would that would shock everybody that ever knew me in elementary school, high school, my teachers, my friends. What could I do that would make such a major change and that I could do instantaneously now? I'm not talking about going through any process, like the process of learning or getting an education or a higher degree. To me, again, just for me, please, it's nonsense. I can only learn in the moment I am living. If someone is teaching me now, I learn now. Not next week, three months from now, five years from now. I learn the moment I am being taught. Now, I have to believe that is true. Otherwise, I will believe in the process we have been taught to believe and that it takes time, hard work, effort, and sacrifice, which I do not believe in any level in my life now. It is nonsense. So when I came here, I said, well, I'm, I'm a poet. Why? Because... Nobody would ever believe that knew me that Mike Stone, a poet, this guy failed the fourth grade, flunked the fourth grade, uh, barely made it through high school. English was his failing subject. If it wasn't for my girlfriend in high school who did my term papers, I never would have passed high school. So that to me was an extreme. And I sat there and within five to ten minutes, I changed my reality from someone that didn't believe he was very bright in English to actually write poetry instantly. And the way I did that is actually now I realize Nikola Tesla made a comment that, or a quote that I believe in wholeheartedly. He said, if you want to find the secrets to the universe, 
think in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. And I realized that if I want to change my life, my world, my universe, that I think in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. And I realized that all the energy of the poets are already coagulated in the ether. So all the similar energies of same frequencies coagulate together and form clumps of energy. All I needed to do was tap into that energy that already exists for people that write poetry. So I don't have to go to school. I don't have to get a degree in English literature. I don't need any of that. I can simply tap in. That means shift my level of frequency and energy to that equaling poet, and I can be a poet instantaneously. And within five minutes, I started to write poetry, and I've written over 200. One of the books is The Poet, A Poetic Look at Life. So we're capable of doing so many things. I also did that exercise with art. I could not even do stick drawing. But I said, I am an artist, and simply hooked up with the uh, frequency vibration of other artists and sat down and started to draw. So one of the books I'm presenting is most of my artwork which I still pass by, look at, and I'm shocked and amazed that I actually drew them. Now, even the poetry, I could never memorize my poetry because I wrote it in a different frequency of energy. I, I wrote everything in what's called heightened awareness, which is another level of frequency and vibration and energy. So when I return to my normal state of thinking, my normal state of awareness, I forgot that I actually wrote these things because I wrote it from a different level of energy and frequency. So even the poems I could not remember or memorize because I wrote it in a different state of mind. So that's why people ask me, how come you have to read your poems when I do seminars? I said, because I could never memorize it. I don't even believe I wrote these. So that's the separation we make with ourselves sometimes, that we separate ourselves so much it's a wonder we don't know who we are, and we'll probably never find out. Mike, when we change the energy frequency we subscribe to, is it a choice or is it a realization? No, uh, a choice is, of course, that's the gift of life, right? We receive two gifts at birth, life and free will to choose. So those we've always had. Uh, it's a matter of faith, trust, and belief. So it goes to a higher level of thinking to begin with. You have to have faith, trust, and believe that who you say you are at that moment, you truly are. That's why, to me, the two most important and the most powerful words we can ever express is I am. I am is simply a declaration to the universe, telling the universe exactly who you are. But we say things, even make prayers and statements that we don't believe, trust, and have faith in. Thus, we don't get the results. So if these statements are made in trust, faith, and belief, then the universe has no choice but to give you exactly what you say you already are and believe you are to be now. So it's easy. Mike, if members of our audience would like to get in contact with you, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? They can just uh, contact me through Facebook. And what are your next steps in publishing your books? The 1st of January, I posted the nine covers of the book on Facebook. So they, they were posted January 1st. But not all nine books will be released at once. I'm going to, in fact, we are in several discussions with different publishers right now. To, I want to find the best ways that we can get the books out because all books are not on martial arts. They are totally different subjects. So... Uh, the ones called the observer, the philosopher, the poet, the dreamer, the writer, uh, the artist. So these nine levels of power are just different ways I chose to express myself while being here that I can be anything. I can be a philosopher, a poet, an artist. So those are the, my particular nine levels of power. So I wrote them into books. Mike, our final question for today, and thank you so much for joining us and for your time, but for our listeners whose attention that you have captured right now and they wish to make major changes in their life immediately right now, what wisdom would you impart with us? Well, first of all, to make a major change, it's going to take 
uh, a process. And I don't like the word process because I don't use processes, but I'll use it because the people that are listening, they believe that they must go through a process to make a change. That means to go from where they are to where they want to be. And for them, that's a process. To me, it's instantaneous. You simply decide this is who I want to be, and boom. When you say that with trust, faith, and belief, you become that idea. You become instantly all the things that are required to be the new you that you decide you want to be, you come totally intact. All of the knowledge, skill, ability, and talent are at your disposal instantly. Now, this is so difficult to understand and believe, and I appreciate that. But I've done it many times over many different subjects. I know this is easy. This is the way life should be lived. There is no effort, no struggling, no sacrifice, no suffering. There's none of those ideas in the idea of making a change from who you are to who you want to be. So if you want to uh, make a major change in your life, you must first recognize what the problem is. What is it you'd like to change? And when you find out what that is, be honest with yourself on every level. First of all, you must admit to yourself at least that you are the creator of every situation in your life, that there is no one to blame, no pointing fingers, except 100%, I am the creator of my experiential reality. Everything, everything in my life is because I chose it at some level. Even if you don't understand the level at which you have made these agreements with yourself. But you must accept that. Mike Stone, congratulations on both your accomplishments as a martial artist and the life changes and realizations and discoveries which you have made. It has been a privilege to speak with you. Thanks again for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you very much. This has been an interview with martial arts pioneer and legend Mike Stone. Be sure to check us out at www.mawradio.com and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube by following Martial Arts World Radio. I'm Joseph Clark. Safe travels and thank you for joining us. Martial Arts World Radio is the official radio show and podcast of The Factory Martial Arts Boxing and Fitness at 450 Matheson Boulevard East, Unit 44, Mississauga, Ontario. Check us out at www.factorygrindgym.com.